Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome back to Administrative Static. Mark Chenoweth here with John Vecchioni. And we have another victory to, uh, to celebrate. We're very excited. Uh, the new Civil Liberties Alliance uh, won a case at the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. It was handed down on uh, last uh, Friday, January 6th. And uh, the case is Cargill uh, versus Garland. This is Michael Cargill against uh, Merrick Garland the, in his official capacity as U.S. Attorney General, this is the bump stock case or one of the bump stock cases that uh, NCLA has uh, has been working on. And, and John, I think it would be fair to say uh, that this was an unmitigated victory. This was a 13 to 3 vote of the 16 members uh, of the court and 13 voted that an act of Congress is required uh, to prohibit bump stocks. And therefore, they had to reverse uh, the district court, which had uh, which had upheld the ATF regulation in question. Then you had 12 members uh, of the court who were willing to reverse on lenity uh, grounds. So the rule of lenity is the rule that says in the event of ambiguity that you would interpret a statute that has criminal penalties or criminal consequences uh, for those accused of violating it, you would interpret that in favor of the criminal defendant in the ambiguity. So you had at least 12 members of the court who were willing to reverse uh, on, on lenity grounds. And then you had eight members of the court, which was, that would be eight to eight. That's just half. So right. that's a- That would affirm the district court if it would, was all it was. It would. But they would have reversed on the ground that federal law unambiguously fails to cover non-mechanical bump stocks. So I guess uh, among the 13 who think that an act of Congress uh, is required to prohibit bump stocks, some of those must have thought that there was ambiguity and some of them must have thought that, well, I guess eight of them thought it was unambiguous. Uh, and then uh, the other five must have thought that there was some ambiguity uh, there, but that, uh, but that lenity would require. And, um, and there's an important Chevron question here sure. that, 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 that as he, you know, uh, whether is Chevron a doctrine the courts must apply or is it only when the government asks for it? And what do they say? Uh, well, they say that the government didn't ask for it here, and therefore it shouldn't it shouldn't apply. Right, but in the D.C. Circuit, they didn't do it, so that's a split. So there's a lot that of splits split. this this causes, and a lot of things for the Supreme Court to look at. There are quite a few things here, and and the decision was written by uh, by uh, Judge Jennifer Walker uh, Elrod, and the the thirteen judges. I'll go through them very quickly. Uh, were in the majority were uh, Chief Judge Richmond, Judge Jones, Judge Smith, Judge Stewart, who I believe is a, a Democrat uh, appointee, Judge Southwick, Judge Haynes, Judge Willett, Judge Ho, Judge Duncan, Judge Englehart, Judge Oldham, and Judge Wilson. So uh, a, a pretty good, uh, pretty good lineup there, a bipartisan lineup uh, in in favor of uh, of Mr. Cargill and NCLA's position uh, in this case. And you know the thing that I uh, found particularly gratifying here, John is that the court really just appears to ha ha have been taking at face value everything that we've been saying 
all along. I mean, when we first brought this case, I thought, well, this is a pretty easy case. I mean, ATF just kind of got out over its skis here and, uh, and they were trying to, uh, it, I mean, what happened here is look, president Trump, uh, told the department of justice and ATF that he wanted to, to ban bump stocks and they needed to find a way to do it. And he wanted to do that because of the massacre that occurred on October 1st of 2017 in Las Vegas. Uh, and so the ATF did his bidding and, Unfortunately, they didn't pay enough attention to the statute and what the law actually requires. And, and they, what they should have done if they wanted to do this was get Congress involved. And Congress, Congress is ready to do this. This, this is this. It, there's two things that have really bothered me about this case. And this this was such a relief because the military court of justice that whoever runs the military uh, courts had already ruled this way. And they were the only court. And e our our other, our other cases, like a potion, there were huge dissents, like for, like six or seven. I forget the numbers right now. But we had gotten a lot of judges to obviously understand this because the ATF for 18 years, when you would buy one of these bump stocks, you would get a little certificate, like what they, you know, like like your prize in the uh, in the cereal boxes from the ATF, signed by the ATF, saying this is not a machine gun and you're a good to have it. And then they changed the law by administrative fiat. That should have been a red flag. But the, the real frustrating thing was um, I always say that judges tend to be liberal arts majors and not engineers or scientists. And the definition of machine gun had to do with the uh, number of trigger pulls. And it was absolutely clear, absolutely clear that all of the bump stock does is you still have to keep pulling the trigger in some way and That's affecting right. the trigger. One and trigger so, shot per bullet so fired. So it was a clear engineering question. It was an engineering question for the definition, and they kept blowing the engineering question, which is which is uh, easy to do. And and they would sort of wave their hands in aware and say, "Well, it looks machine gunny," and that's really yeah. not how you can do statutes. It's not how you do science. It, it that sort of vague. Well, it's not how Congress did it, and and it's not how Congress did it. So all of that stuff has bothered me, and this came as a huge relief for that reason. They got pictures of the device and all that. It's very it's very well done, just from an engineering point. No, I agree with that. And, and the case you're talking about is United States v. Alcazag, the Navy Marine Corps Court of Criminal Appeals, which had considered the final rule in the context of a criminal prosecution uh, for, for possession of a, of a machine gun, which was actually possession of a gun that wasn't a machine gun that had a bump stock, uh, but, but had, uh, someone had been found guilty of that. But the, the, court of criminal, the Navy Marine Corps Court of Criminal Appeals looked at that and said, no, 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 no. Under the best reading of the statute, a bump stock is not a machine gun, and it reversed that uh, conviction. Uh, so here we have another uh, court of appeals, the Fifth Circuit, U.S. Court of Appeals, likewise finding uh, that, uh, uh, that at least under under lenity, but also that, that this is the kind of thing that Congress uh, has to do, which is wonderful. But we were starting to talk, John, about the fact that there were bills that were already going. And that was one of the things I really liked about this decision was that they talked about Senator Dianne Feinstein's uh, pending legislation at, at the time that this regulation uh, was proposed. And it quoted her at, at great length. Uh, to you know, to the fact that uh, that um, uh, well, I'll just quote part of it. Both Justice Department and ATF lawyers know that legislation is the only way to ban bump stocks. The law has not changed since 1986, and it must be amended to cover bump stocks and other dangerous devices like trigger cranks. Our bill does this; the regulation does not. That was a press release from Diane Feinstein in in March of 2018 uh, when this regulation was percolating to to try to ban bump stocks administratively. And I, I liked the fact that the court latched onto that because 
what this regulation did is it short-circuited the legislative process. So a lot of times people will say, oh, well, you know, you need the administrative state because Congress, you know, Congress can't get anything done. Well, Congress was trying to do something. And in fact, Congress passed a different, whether you like it or not, and, and you know, I'm somebody who wasn't a big fan of it, but you like it or not, Congress also passed a gun control law last year. They didn't include a bump stock ban in that bill either. And, and my view was th- this, that thing was sailing to passage. There was no reason that when Trump wanted it, everybody wanted it. There was, there was the NRA wanted it. They didn't oppose it. That's right, for sure. Right. And they didn't sue over this. Right. The NRA did not sue Correct. over bump, over the bump stock ban. Right. Uh, so, uh, so I thought it was, uh, and, you know, and I don't know what sort of machinations went on behind the scenes uh, that, that led to that. What I do know in terms of machinations uh, behind, behind the scenes, John, is that there were numerous attorneys in the Trump administration who took a look at this, who all said, uh, you know, the courts are going to strike this down. This is the worst rule we've ever done. There's, there's like, we don't have a leg to stand on here. Uh, and there was a, a real feeling among the people who put it out that this just wasn't going to stand. And I think that there's a lesson that needs to be learned here, which is don't do that. Stop doing that. It's your job if you're an attorney in an administration in the Department of Justice or any other federal agency that's issuing a rule, if you think that the rule is not uh, constitutional or that it's not keeping infidelity with the statute, you need to, to say that forthrightly and you need to stop it in the administrative process and not rely on the courts to do your dirty work. Because three of the four courts that have looked at this failed to strike it down. And, you know, if we hadn't brought this case in the Fifth Circuit, then who knows? This might be sailing through to, to being a, a law permanently. Yeah, and I, I hope I hope they do look at it. I will say this. There was a little straw in the wind yesterday on another matter. The Federal Reserve, the head of it, I forget his name, he said— Jerome Powell. Jerome Powell. He's, they were pushing all this ESG stuff on him, and he said, you know, that's really not the job of the Federal Reserve. You guys have to do it. That's and right. I was so stunned. Yeah. I, I was like, he, he, he read— he read EPA versus West Virginia or something. I mean, I, but I was stunned. Or he has enough independence. But, you know, that, that, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> and it, but, but the fact was, the, the fact is, maybe there is a little bit of a crack that maybe we won't see these circuits the next time. Yeah. So what, what else? Why was Judge Ho, why was Judge Ho where he was? I, I would. You know, I, the short answer is I'm not sure, John, because, uh, you know, it's, it, he, he writes separately to make a big deal out of, uh, out of the, um, uh, uh, lenity issue, but there was already uh, you know, twelve votes uh, in favor of lenity, and he joined with the, the twelve members who uh, who were willing to reverse on lenity grounds. So I don't know. I think maybe he just thought that the majority opinion didn't uh, go into enough detail about uh, about lenity, and he really wanted to to particularly underscore that aspect uh, of what was was going on here. Uh, but I don't know. Uh, you know, I don't know for sure. I mean, he, he also had some grammatical points to make in terms of of how to uh, how to you know, read the statute uh, that maybe um, that maybe other people uh, on the uh, on the court were you know, less enamored of or or didn't want to to make the uh, the main focus of uh, of the majority opinion. Um, and uh, you know, but I you know, I certainly don't think that there's anything in his uh, in his opinion that calls into question uh, the way that the majority uh, handled uh, handle this case. So, uh, uh, so, so, uh, in terms of where things go from here, John, do you think that the, uh, well, actually before I, before I uh, go there, um, uh, I wanted to point out that, that the judges in dissent did say that they thought that this was, uh, 
you know, the, the, what the court had done today was uh, legalize a weapon of mass destruction or something like that, the, uh, the, uh, uh, a weapon that can be used for mass murder, which of course it was on, uh, on October 1st of 2017. Uh, but that, uh, and we'll be back with more about this case uh, right after this. back to Administrative Static, where we were talking about NCLA's wonderful victory uh, in our bump stock case, uh, Cargill uh, v. Garland, a case that we took on not for Second Amendment reasons, but because we thought that an agency of the federal government had exceeded its statutory authority to write criminal laws and, and that that was not something that, uh, that we could stand for. And so uh, we jumped in and, and, John, we finally got uh, a court of appeals to go along with us and, and decide that, in fact, it is Congress's job to write the criminal laws. And this isn't something that the ATF or other federal agencies should be doing. Uh, but one of the things that uh, I thought was interesting uh, here was uh, this this debate over sort of how ambiguous uh, something has to be before lenity uh, kicks in. And there, I guess, are two schools of thought, uh, even within the sort of pro-lenity uh, crowd. Uh, and then maybe predictably, the anti-lenity crowd uh, sides with the with the stricter of these two you know, schools of thought. So the question is: Is garden variety ambiguity enough uh, to to cause lenity to kick in, uh, or uh, does it require grievous ambiguity uh, before uh, lenity uh, kicks in? And you know, John, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but to me, the the question is, you know needs to be sort of from the perspective of a potential criminal. Has Congress drawn a clear line about what conduct is unlawful and what conduct is not unlawful? And if that line isn't clear, then uh, to me, that's grievously ambiguous because you don't know whether certain conduct is going to be criminal uh, or not. So, uh, and, I, and I would just say, I think it's funny. I, I don't remember anyone ever arguing over whether something was garden variety ambiguous or grievously ambiguous in the Chevron context. They just say, oh, it's ambiguous, Chevron. Uh, but, but now they're trying to make it a little harder to apply lenity. And, and I, I think about this um, a little bit in that uh, it, it, should, it should matter. Like if, you, if it's a little ambiguous, but that little ambiguity covers what you're being accused of. Right. right. <laughs> I mean, should yeah. you get away? Like it's one thing if the statute is ambiguous, but not to you, right? Mm -hmm. And you've done something that's clearly... But it, that's a foolish, foolish thing for the courts to do because they're now going to be approached with tons of cases where the person is in that, that you know, a little ambiguity area. And then what do they do? I mean, so I, I think it's a bad st structure. And I, I think I wonder what the, the Gorsuch Sotomayor crap, uh, duo will do with that. Well, Gorsuch has been on the record right. uh, questioning the grievous ambiguity standard. Okay. So, so I think he's... He's not the question mark there. Uh, I think uh, actually Justice Kavanaugh is probably the question there. He's the one who, at least in the D.C. Circuit, I'm not sure about uh, any prior Supreme Court uh, cases, but in the D.C. Circuit, he was uh, 
he had uh, argued uh, that something had to be grievously ambiguous before lenity uh, would would come into play. Uh, and I just I think we need to get out of the habit of deferring to administrative agency interpretations of statutes. And when you're talking about doing that in the criminal context, we particularly need to. So when you change the regulation after 18 years as well. Yes. I mean, that's the other thing. They shouldn't be able to make you a criminal by administrative fiat. That's that. So so that is that, grievous. It's another reason. It's another reason this ambiguity when they've changed it. I, I have to say, if if the statute came out in uh, 1986 uh, or uh, the last time this thing was done, it comes out in 1986. And in 1987, the agency comes out and says it means this, this and this, and they never change. Well, is that ambiguous? You have a less you have a harder time saying anything's ambiguous. But when they've kept it for almost two, a generation and then they switch it with no other further congressional action, there's got to be a doctrine that the courts say, no way. Yeah, call it the Feinstein doctrine. <laughs> <laughs> so what happens now, John? So we've got this decision from the U.S. Court of Appeals as an en banc decision of the Fifth Circuit. So uh, DOJ, ATF, their only choice if they want to try to fight this would be to take the case to the U.S. Supreme Court. They have three courts of appeals on their side, the, the D.C. Circuit, the Sixth Circuit, and the Tenth Circuit, and they only have one that's gone against them now. So will they go to the Supreme Court and ask for this to be overturned? So I think they will, but I, I, if I were advising them, I would say no. And I would say no for practical reasons. Everybody in the country who's law-abiding handed in their bump stocks right? We got the, we have the only clients who have their bump stocks because we have a court order that they'll hold it until we, the case is over, right? Right. So <laughs> there's one bump stock <laughs> sort of legally out there. And it's this one. Now you can create a bump stock anytime and people could go do that. Right. But It'd be a, a manufacturing. Yeah, uh, uh, exactly. So people could do that. Blooming but, of manufacturing bump stocks in Texas. But as a friend of mine said, you know, I think these are really good for wasting ammunition. Um, do they think it's a big enough problem that they want to go and get A, the Chevron thing decided, and B, how many times are they going to use their enforcement powers on this? So if you were making those decisions, I think you would say no. But that would be a very political decision. Yes. But but I think they have to go for it. I, I think that the idea that in the Fifth Circuit and in the military circuits, you'll you're a free man and everywhere else you're a criminal is going to uh they would rather do it now than wait for somebody they prosecute them and then this thing spreads i i think i think that's probably right i mean i because i think it's pretty clear that if i mean given this decision if someone were prosecuted for bump stock ownership in one of the other circuits surely they would they would ultimately prevail uh to your point if you know if there is somebody out there who's buried their bump stock in the backyard or whatever or or, or hidden it away somewhere squirreled it away and, and, and they're planning to pull it out uh, now, if they're outside, if, if this doesn't get taken to the Supreme Court and they, uh, you know, and they, um, and they want to rely on this decision, I sure wouldn't do that if you weren't in Texas, Louisiana, or Mississippi. How about this? How about I have a bump stock in Texas and um, I drive- want to bring it home. And I want to, and I, <laughs> exactly. And, and, or, or, or I just have it in the trunk of my car and I drive into Arkansas and then, <laughs> and then I come back to Texas and I'm arrested in Arkansas. Um, I, I think that that would, that would cause a, a lot of, a lot of issues and problems. Well, I mean, the Supreme court is already taking way fewer cases than it ought to take. And 
the kind of cases that it says it wants to take are these cases where there are circuit splits. As you said, there are multiple circuit splits in this case. So, uh, John, do you think that they might, say, try to tee up one of the other circuit splits and sort of ignore the statutory interpretation circuit split, but try to just bring up the Chevron circuit split or just bring up the Lenity circuit split or something like that? I don't think they can because Chevron doesn't save them here, right? So, so and, and the court isn't going to want to do that. They don't want to take a Chevron case where it doesn't solve the case where the Supreme Court would have to rely on Chevron in order to reverse. Right, mean, right. Yeah. But yeah, but I also I also think that that what are they going to do? They're going to say, well, we find that um, if the if the government waives Chevron, then that's OK. It, it isn't a mandatory. Right. And they make the decision. They remand to the lower court. Right. With with further to 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 do something, you know, in, in following their order. I don't think they'll say and now the other thing, maybe they will, but if the question is, is Chevron mandatory or voluntary, that's all they'll do. Because mm-hmm. we know they've been avoiding Chevron, so we- Like I, the plague. So I don't think that they'd go to the next step and then say, oh, and by the way, um, uh, if, if there's no Chevron, this doesn't stand. I think that's what they should do, but I wouldn't take bets on that if the question is just, is it voluntary or not? Yeah, I don't, I don't know how much money I'd put on that either. I mean- uh, I do want to say this before I forget, and that's to give uh, props to our colleague, Rich Samp, who uh, who wrote the, uh, uh, certainly did the lion's share of the work on the on the brief seeking and rehearing it. on bank and re- argued in front of the on bank Fifth Circuit. Uh, so congratulations uh, to Rich uh, for this wonderful uh, outcome for our client, uh, Michael Cargill, uh, who, who's ex-military and owns a gun store in Austin, Texas, and uh, and is a, is a terrific, terrific client, uh, have enjoyed working on this, uh, on this case with him. Uh, uh, I think the timing is one of the thing I wanted to mention here, John. So we know that the court had held on to our Apotian case for, I think it was 20 or 21 uh, different re, uh, reschedulings before they finally put it on the, the docket and decided not to grant cert. Well, you know what happened uh, just before the last time that they then put it on the docket and and, and decided not to grant cert, oral argument in this case <laughs> took place. And I just can't help but wonder. I mean, I guess if you were a, a real conspiracy theorist, you might say, oh, well, maybe maybe one of the judges on the Fifth Circuit tipped off one of the justices on the Supreme Court about what had happened in the conversation among, among the judges. I have zero basis uh, for, for that supposition. But the timing's a little suspicious. And I do wonder if if at least maybe somebody, you know, a clerk or a justice listened to the oral argument in the Fifth Circuit and said, well, it's pretty clear that the Cargill case is going to you know, come out a certain way. Uh, and, and given that, we don't need to hear a potion because we'll have this opportunity uh, to hear the Cargill case. Why might they want to hear the Cargill case instead of the Apotian case? The Apotian case was up on a preliminary injunction uh, posture, whereas this case, there's already been a trial. It's, it's all the way through the trial, regular trial and appeal. And so they might prefer to have this case. And they may also prefer, John, to grant cert to the government rather than to grant cert to somebody like a potion. I will say this, you know, they usually grant cert when they want to reverse. But here, what I think happened more likely is that there was no circuit split. There was the military court, but they don't usually consider that a split because it's not an Article Three court. And so I think it was more like how many of these non-circuit splits are we going to grant? I think there's an institutional um, 
view that they shouldn't be granting anything without a circuit split. And so if you want to take that case as Supreme Court justice, you have a really have to cajole your your confreres into doing it. Right. They didn't have four votes to do it. Apparently, That's that's what I think. And I I think it's as simple as that. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, Occam's razor says the simplest explanation is often the, the likeliest. So that may that may be exactly right. Uh, but, uh, but any event, I think if the, you know, assuming that the solicitor general seeks cert uh, on this case, I think the chances of a grant are as close to hundred percent as you can get. I mean, I think that, that, uh, that the only way this doesn't get heard by the Supreme court is if the solicitor general makes the political decision not to seek a cert. I think it'll be a little interesting to see how many different questions, uh, they, they seek cert on, but I think they at least need to seek cert on the statutory interpretation. Right. And, and everyone who's not a lawyer out there, we couldn't seek cert because we won. You can only seek cert if you lose. Good point. Good point. Well, anyway, glad to, to end today's show on this, uh, on this wonderful victory and look forward to having you tune in next week for Administrative Static. 